Tony would come back and they would tell stories. This is Dr. Howard Dial, Tony's mentor and college professor at Carver. Well, they went to this record shop. There's a record right across the street over there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Tony and a couple of the Carver students. And they walk in and they had one of the, I don't remember who it was, but it was one of the white faculty members with them to go into that <laughs> store. Uh-huh. And uh, so, right, well, you could feel the tension, they said, that this white guy, he doesn't belong in here. And they told him that. And they, the, the proprietor asked them, says, they said, he, he's with us. That's it. He's with us. And the proprietor said, you with me and I'm with you. But he ain't with us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That was the atmosphere yeah. that existed. It's easy to laugh today about stories like this. But in 1970, the divisive sentiment was very real. And it's all anyone wanted to talk about, particularly in Atlanta, where young Tony Evans was more than up to the challenge. Welcome to Start to Finish, the life and ministry of Dr. Tony Evans. Episode 3, the learner. In many ways, Tony's years in Atlanta recall the refiner's fire prophecy found in Zechariah 13. On the Lord's day of judgment, two-thirds of the people will be cut off. The Lord declares what he will do with the rest, starting in verse 9. I will put this third through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. This was a period of testing for Tony, a period where he was refined by the heat of the socio-political climate he found himself in. These years were the crucible that forged the first pillars of the kingdom agenda. For Tony and the students at Carver, the incident at Colonial Hills was the match that lit the fire. The discussion was about the black church and white church. Okay. The discussion was about the history of segregation. It bloomed into this bigger thing of which that was a um, simply an instigator for more broad-based discussions on race. Right. This is where the school had to come to, to deal with this right. at a higher level because it could not be ignored. Right. And there were even upheavals on our campus between administration and students. Yeah. Uh, John McNeil was the stabilizing factor. I think you may not want to say this, so I'll say it for you, that we at Carver in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, there was a lot of acrimony, anger. Here, Howard Dial is speaking to John McNeil. I mean, it was in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, and the civil rights movement was... And you, you had black power coming in, and, you know, we had to deal with these things in faculty meetings, the dashikis and the afros, and um, how did we handle all this? And the students were ready to argue issues. And But I'll say this for, I think, your impact on Tony. With your upbringing coming up in—and in, in, you've told me some things. That's why I'm saying this. What you had to endure growing up in the— 30s, 40s in middle Georgia, mm-hmm. segregation. Mm-hmm. And he went to report for duty to serve in World War II. And he went to the wrong door. He went through the front door. And here's Philip Yancey relaying a story about John McNeil. And the woman who was uh, selling him a bus ticket, the first was going to kind of look at him sharply, like, what are you doing here, man? And then 
he told her where he wanted to go and why. And she said, well, I, I guess if you, if you can serve our country, you can come in the front door. Wow. And that's the kind of demeaning experience that um, people like John McNeil, who grew up in Georgia, um, lived with on a daily basis. He was a calming factor because he was bibliocentric, but also mature as a person and as a person who had experienced racism, but who knew how to deal with both sides. It was a, I could learn from right. him to, to not ignore the realities of, but not leave the Bible to address it. In your, your manner, your calmness, your lack of no bitterness, and a calming effect, a calming effect, it had that on the effect on the students. Because, you know, we had some uprisings occasionally. But here's Tony in the middle of all this. And I don't know that he was attracted to the more belligerent, uh, in-your-face thing. Uh, you know more about that. But it didn't seem that he was. But you had a calming effect on him and the students because mm. they'd come talk to you. And what you had, and, and you had the credentials. You had, you had endured a lot. Well, I lived through the movement, Martin Luther King, and, and I went before the Lord, and I fell on my face in my room. Lord, I want to know what's happening. Why, why are people hating and killing and all these kind of things? What is it that you're trying to say? Do you want segregation? I asked him, do you want segregation? That's what This is what you want? Or do you want integration? Is that what you want? What is it that you want us to do without us destroying ourselves? The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, I'm not for segregation. I'm not for integration. I'm for indwelling. That got me. Indwelling. He's not for segregation, not for integration. He's for indwelling. And if he can indwell my body, nobody else can be able to say I'm inferior. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit indwell in my heart. And you can call me anything on the outside, but I know who I am in the Lord. He's no respect for person, you see. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that would turn in the rest. You know, you do your best. Mm -hmm. And don't worry about other people, you see. You live for the Lord. You take your stand. Were you ever lured by the power and control that some of the more militant groups um, and their mission, were, were you ever invited in? Could, could you recollect anything because you're becoming even a leader during those those college years? No, that was the challenge. The, the challenge was to balance the truth of the word with the legitimate versus illegitimate uh, uh, responses to the social realities. We're, that was no small task. Right especially in a conservative theological environment that didn't know how to handle it and a militaristic environment to some degree, because you had, I mean, you had the tension between the Black Panthers and Martin Luther King, because they were in conflict with each other right. in terms of methodology. Right. How do you address the issue of racism? So you had that tension, and uh, uh, so you had to interact with both sides of that um, and and that led to a whole bigger thing of uh, uh, social ethics in the Bible and how it is to relate to uh, uh, the political, social, rea uh, racial realities in the culture. And being 
uh, not far from the university system in Atlanta, and then ITC, the theological center of that system. The debates, the discussion, being in uh, Martin Luther King's hometown, and all of the things that surrounded the racial animus during that time was uh, daunting, and so you couldn't escape it. So I had to interact with it. Also emerging was uh, James Cone, who was the father of black theology. So walking through that, reading James Cone, you know, just trying to to get your handle on that was— then you had Bob Jones University, conservative theologically, but segregationist. Right. Uh, and 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 but then you had the conservatives who wouldn't support Billy Graham because of second degree separation. So you had all of these confluences that right. were bumping up against each other, and I'm trying to wade through them to what was the the balance. So I was never tempted to go militaristic uh, in in my approach, but I couldn't ignore the legitimacy of the reason for it. Right. So nuancing that. Right. Was not a was not an easy task, but but it was a stretching task. Right. And it and it did make me want to go deeper. Do you remember any conversations with with leaders from these different groups? Not even perhaps even just during your college years, but over the years that, oh, absolutely. that have been absolutely. Uh, they continue to this day, depending yeah. on the situation. But right. back in the college days, it was mainly with the ITC students. ITC stands for the Interdenominational Theological Center and is a collection of African-American denominational seminaries. Because uh, I'm in this conservative theological environment, they're in a more, I will call it a more liberal theological environment. And that led to to worldview clashes because there were two different worldviews, two different views of the Bible, two different views of the interpretation of Scripture, two different views of the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Mm. I mean, they, they, these were two different worldviews. Yeah. But what I didn't know was that that would be helping to set the stage for which would become this kingdom worldview. Right, right. Because I could see the flaws in traditional evangelicalism. The flaws over here were very evident to me clearly as well. Right. But that forced me to have to deal with both sides. And uh, I think to to my benefit, that wrestle uh, allowed me to uh, to come out with something that would uh, pull the truths together right. in a way that would acknowledge the truth on one side, but acknowledge the error equally on, wow. on, on each side. I mean, you take a, a, a simple passage like Luke 4, the conservative Christianity would always spiritualize Jesus' call to the ministry to preach good news to the poor and yeah. to the captives and all of that. They're almost 100% would spiritualize it. That way they could ignore the relationship of the call right. to the social structure of, of Jesus' ministry. Yeah. On the other hand, the more liberal side of it would either only see the social call or the spiritual would be so minimized that you wouldn't know it's there even if it was acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Which, well, that forced me to do a little bit more digging. And as time went on and I did more digging, the acceptable year of the Lord, Leviticus 25, uh, the year of Jubilee, so Jesus is quoting the year of Jubilee, 
And and God was resetting society. Slaves were set free. Debt was canceled. Right. Uh, poverty. The whole social structure of Israel was right. reshaped in the 49th year. Right. But when the year of Jubilee was inaugurated by the Day of Atonement. So yeah. you couldn't even have the social structure without the Day of Atonement. <laughs> so this side was right on the Day of Atonement, yeah. and this side was right on the social restructuring, yeah. but they weren't arguing from that standpoint. Right. So uh, so That's getting the, divide, getting yeah. the biblical right. tools yep. to do my own work, uh, it helped to cultivate this, this worldview for, for me and through me. So with that being so foundational to the, the kingdom uh, agenda and... and do you recollect um, during those college years, mentors specifically, and this could be Dr. McNeil, Dr. Dow, who were in that kingdom zone, right? Yes, because they modeled it. They yeah. lived it out with each other. Yeah. And they lived it out with the students. And uh, they did not shy away from it. Can you talk just about just you as a young preacher and, and you know, developing those skills, that gift? Um, do you remember anything yeah. strategic? Howard Dial was the preaching professor that I okay. took preaching from. But I was also in an environment of preaching that was second to none in Atlanta wow. in terms of the black pulpit. Right. Uh, Jasper Williams was a noted name. And he was an eloquent orator, as many others were in that era of the black pulpit. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier. That word endure means to accept or survive. Endure means not giving in to the pressures that have been heaped upon you. Endure means to persevere in spite of the odds. And of course, those pulpits were heavily invested in race, justice, but also the cross. The cross was a big, big part of that, but yep. with that justice motif yep. connected to it. I was living in an environment of dual approaches to preaching. The white preaching, expositional, mm -hmm exegetical, theological. Mm -hmm. The black preaching tended to be more topical and often more relevant and engaging because it had to be because of the experience of the culture and the audience being spoken to. When the history of, of the African-American experience is analyzed, and you understand the narrative nature of communication where, you know, reading and writing was prohibited. So narrative became the way of communicating story right. and experience. But tied now to this Christian framework, I began slowly, unbeknownst to me, a, a process of integration. Well, in the black church culture, for preachers that I, that I came up uh, uh, under, there was a lot of what we would call hoop. This is multi-platinum record-selling artist and rapper, multi-Grammy winner, Kirk Franklin. 
it was called hooping. And so hooping is when, like, at the end of the sermon, is when a pastor kind of tunes up and it, mm, he's a good guy. And that is the, the polar opposite right. of what Tony Evans was doing. Just the fact that here is a man of color whose presentation of the gospel was totally opposite of what all these other pastors and preachers that were doing as they were coming on, doing their hour sermons. And I think that level of commitment to expository teaching, even then probably was something that I never experienced. I never experienced hearing a pastor not seem to give three points and take you straight to Calvary. I don't know. It was, it was just, you know, you know what I'm saying? And even as a young man, I think that I caught that. Integrating this emphasis on exegesis and exposition to narrative. Right. And when that, I guess that would be the unique thing that um, I had to start this process of preaching with, of combining the two. But the Old Testament is full of narrative. The New Testament is full of doctrine and theology. Yep. So if you put the whole Bible together, yeah. you know, you've, got, you've got theology and doctrine, but you also have narrative and story. Right. And and I, I think that that began to uh, unexpectedly grow as a style yep. of preaching that I think has served served well the the, the pulpit approach that, yeah, so that, the, that grew. The narrative that that obviously we love in your preaching, that was starting to be cultivated even in those it college was. days. It was starting to be cultivated. And the uh the Germans call it the Zitzenleben, which is the situation in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to see what life was saying and speak into it, but do it so bibliocentrically. Yes. So I love that approach to preaching. I think that is the biblical approach to preaching because we're not just to preach the Word because the Bible was not merely the Word of God written. It was the Word of God written to people. Yeah. Forty authors over 1,500 years, and they were written to certain people at certain times dealing with certain realities. Right. It was written to life, right. not just to theory or to abstract theology and esoteric uh, uh, thinking. I mean, it was it was a relevantly written document. Right. So it should be a relevantly preached document, or as John Stott says in his his fine work on preaching, Between Two Worlds. Between Two Worlds, yeah. I wrote this down. You previously shared the human equation cannot be left out of the proclamation. Oh, I've, I said that. I I've, need to write that I've, down. I've, so, used, I've used that a couple the times. Human equation must not have right? a, make a note of that. <laughs> While Tony spent a great deal of time asking his questions and processing that into his kingdom theology, you better believe he was putting what he was learning into action. During the college days, I would go out. I gathered a group of young people. We called it Christian Youth on the Move, if if my memory serves me right. And we would go to the bus stops. They would hand out tracts. I would go in front of the people at the bus stop and share a gospel message. And we did that on Friday nights. (laughs) And so the bus stops at that time, rush hour, would have a good number of people standing there. So we would do that. Then another group would come to catch the bus. So we would do that maybe for an hour. There were times, because uh, the nation of Islam was was strong in right. Atlanta. Right. And so there would be sometimes resistance. There was one threatening time that I can remember uh, where a person was very offended 
at the preaching and teaching. Um, uh, but uh, there were people who were, you know, witnessed to, a few who came to Christ, and then it was the, a confidence builder because this right. was raw. I mean, right. you just went out there and, and went after it. Right. So, so, so I when it that. went, you know, the, the the threats that were shared at that one time or whatever. I mean, did that shut it down? Did you keep? No, no, it? we kept going. Yeah. No, oh no, we wouldn't shut it down. Yeah, you out there now? Yeah. You're out there now. You can't be, you can't be punking out. Right. You know, <laughs> once you start, you know, once you start, once you, start you out there. You got to go for it. You know, you get some, some threatening looks sometimes from, from that because it's like preaching a white Jesus. Yep. Yep. And and, uh, and the white Jesus is the oppressive Jesus. Mm. And while you understood, kind of the framework from that. It didn't change who we believe Jesus to be, right? And who we we were confident that Jesus is, right? And so that didn't change that, but but there was that framework, uh, and you saw that in 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 some of the movements of the day that right. this this white blonde blue eyed Jesus who is who who was oppressing black people, vindicated by black Christian. Uh, movements yep. and frameworks and thinking and theology. Right. Because you have to remember the Bible was used in a very strong way by white Christians to maintain segregation, Jim Crow, racism. I had heard straight racism taught. I heard it taught at Colonial Hills, the, the curse of ham theory. Here's Philip Yancey again. A lot of people don't know what it is, and I think that's great that they don't know what right. I was taught. And it basically said that that black people descended from one of the children of Noah, who was cursed by God. The curse meant burnt black, and they would be servants all the rest of their lives. Since the Bible was a format that that was utilized to endorse some of the social structures that were in place. Jesus, in some quarters, was not a very popular person, right? Or at least the the view of Jesus was not a popular person, right? Depending on where you were on that continuum, right? But Tony never backed away from the Word of God. Once again, here's John McNeil. He would go over and he would proclaim right. that Jesus is Savior of the world, and and they said, "Well, you you need to get out of that white man's teaching and this kind of thing." And right, but he just stood for. The Lord. Now, to be fair, the black church still held a high view of Jesus. The black, we'll call it the black traditional right. church. Right. Still a high view of Jesus, but were much more socially conscious. Mm -hmm. But then there was the other view of Jesus that he was the oppressor. Right. Because Jesus' name and his book was being used to advance right. uh, many of the social inequities that were being experienced. Right. So God's obviously using this time in your life to to build within you a, a call, a mission. Do you remember any time in college just feeling overwhelmed, discouraged, you know, as God's cultivating? Or, or was this a time where it was like, come on, let's go. Let's hit the street corners. Let's, let's push Oh, yeah. Forward. I mean, I was already geared that way. Yeah. So my personality just took me to the forefront of that. Right. Um, and so I was very aggressive in... And you spoke to hope. Mm -hmm. 
I spoke to unity and hope. Yep, yep. Unity and hope. And I spoke very bibliocentrically. So I think I was being honed to use the Bible differently mm. than it had been used. Um, and in the South, there was a style of the religious experience, the black experience, right. that had been inculcated into the life of the church. Right. Because the church was everything in the, in the African-American context. It was not only our spiritual reality, but our social reality, our political reality, our entertainment reality. You know, it became, it was all of life was centered around the church. And so it was a great learning experience to see that lived out in a unique way in the South that you didn't even see it in the North, mm. of the centrality of the church to all of life, which actually wind up over time affecting my theological framework mm. of ecclesiology. Right. So because you could see all of life emanating from it. You could do nothing without the church's backing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't. And... and it, it's not like that today as it was then, but there's still elements of it today. Right. But the church represented all of life, and that would become part of my kingdom theology. If I could add one thing. This is Dr. Howard Dial again. When I first went to Carver, I prayed. Um, I asked the Lord to raise up some young, especially young men, black preachers, who would go out and preach the word and impact the nation and the world. Lord, can you do that? We weren't large in number. We're a humble little school. And I see God answered that prayer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know at the time how it would come about. And I, and I don't mean to say that Tony's the only one, but he represents others who have. We'll be right back. How do you know if a pastor needs encouragement? Does he have a pulse? Yes then he needs encouragement. Whether you're a new or seasoned pastor, you likely have a resource library and tools for sermon preparation. But what about other aspects of ministry? Where do you turn for encouragement in scripture? On Pastor Resources, you will find tools to encourage and equip you personally and pastorally. These resources, compiled by the North American Mission Board, will help you engage with other pastors, equip you for the everyday grind of ministry, encourage you to live out your calling with confidence, Sign up for our new monthly newsletter and get a free download of the ebook, A Ministry Toolkit for Pastors. The free ministry toolkit for pastors provides lists of passages on pastoral care, classic and contemporary wedding outlines, funeral preparation tips and sermons, articles from trusted pastors to help you lead well. Go to nam.net slash pastors or check out the episode show notes. After an intense few years of street preaching and racial debates, of being a newlywed and a new father, Tony's time at Carver was drawing to a close. He was faced with the question every college graduate is peppered with, what's next? But given Tony's passion for both the word and for learning, the choice wasn't really what, but where. Well, here's what happened. I had a couple of professors. They saw my interest in study and all of that, who challenged me to keep going to seminary. I started thinking, and I told him, Tony, you need to be patient, and you need to think about seminary. Hmm. And go on and get some advanced training, and you're going to have to be patient because you want to get right out there and save the world for Jesus. 
but there is a there is a requirement and I even spoke to the importance of credentials. You know, whether they like it or not, that's the way it works. Get some credentials. So my natural thought was Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. Okay. Because that's where Howard Dahl went. That's where John McNeil went. So I applied to Grace Theological Seminary, was accepted, uh, and so we were prepared to go to, to Grace Theological Seminary. In the spring of my senior year, there was a professor of Bible named Doug McIntosh, and he asked me the question, have you thought about Dallas Seminary? His point was, Dallas Seminary, when well, no lake is out there in Never Never Land, <laughs> Dallas Seminary is in a major urban area, more conducive to what he thought my ministry would be. Right. And he says, if, if I paid for your application fee, will you at least apply? I said, yes, uh, if you, yes, but I, you know, I'm all set for grace. But I applied. This is in the spring semester. Didn't expect it to go anywhere because it's so late. When I got back a probationary acceptance from Dallas Seminary as I was ending my senior year, that threw us into a conundrum, a mental, spiritual <laughs> crisis because we were all set for, for Indiana. But this is one of those suddenly moments that yeah. the Bible talks about that you didn't expect. Yeah. Can I ask, what does it mean, probationary? It means they want to see whether you could do the academics. Because okay. Carver was such a small school. Right. Um, are, you, are you really at the point? I find out he wanted to go to seminary. Doug wanted him to go to Dallas. I encouraged him. I said, well, you go ahead home and go. He said, did you think I should go? Yeah, you should go. Well, he said, you sure? I said, yeah, yeah you, you, you can do it. I'm going to give you a, a silver coin. And I gave him a silver coin. And I said, if God fear you, you send my money back. He never sent it back to me. <laughs> Lois and I been said together, we agreed that this would be a better move. So this would be a better move. So we decided with that curveball and how it happened with Doug McIntosh to go to Dallas. So we packed up in the summer of 72, yep. and we drove from Atlanta to Dallas in my green Nova with no air conditioning. With Crystal. With Crystal. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, yeah, that's right. We had a trailer pulling. The, the car was pulling a trailer without tra stuff. Yep. That's right. We arrived during the day, and I'm trying to remember the name of the professor who... John Reed. Wow. John Reed. I don't know why I remember these names like this. I love this. it. But John Reed met us as we pulled up to the campus and was very warm. He, he, he was very warm and welcoming. So glad to have you here. On one level, this seems like a very natural progression for Tony. This was actually another Kairos moment, an intersecting point orchestrated by God. In going to school like Dallas Theological Seminary, Tony was granted access to conservative biblical training his black mentors had been denied. Just over a decade before, John McNeil had applied to Dallas and wasn't allowed to attend. I'm now the fourth African-American student at Dallas Seminary because a few years before then, no American black students could go there because it was segregated. 
uh, so I'm the fourth black American student, but I am, I am stoked. I am geeked. I, I was so excited yep. to be coming to Dallas Seminary. Because yep. I love to study. I love to study the scriptures. And I knew this would be a whole nother level. And guys, he's not kidding. We asked him about his favorite classes and professors. Yeah, I remember a few of them. <laughs> One was Bruce Walkie. Bruce Walkie taught Old Testament and he taught Hebrew. You would go to Bruce Walkie's class to hear his opening prayer, taking a class from Haddon Robinson on biblical exposition. His first class was entitled, No Cake Today. And he worked that thing about preaching, and I just sat there with my mouth open. Another professor named Phil Hook, inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. I was an inquiring mind. Another person I'm getting to know, but not so much personally, but in classes, Howard Hendricks. Very engaging. Very, we called him prof. Prof was extremely engaging. The beauty of Adam Robinson was he had enough of the narrative mindset mm. while heavy on exposition. His big thing was the big idea that the Bible was written not just to give words, but to give ideas mm. shaped by words. Mm. And those ideas are what you preach. I remember a final exam in Dr. Walkie's class. <laughs> the final exam. So we all walk in. We're studying textual criticism for the Old Testament, all of these highfalutin things. And his test was he put a dot in the middle of the paper. And he put E-X-T-A-N-T, extant text. And then on the other end of the paper, he draws a line and he says, something like uh, the completed Old Testament. So you have extent text, draws a line, complete the Old Testament. And he says, gentlemen, begin your test. I just decided to write everything I knew about anything I had learned in the, in the course, and whatever will be, will be. So there was a preaching class that went over preaching, but then there was a preaching laboratory. So you actually got to preach and he would evaluate the preaching. So you'd have a topic and you would have to preach. Like your flow, your pauses, yeah, your, pauses your addiction, your, yeah, your... all of that. Yeah. Yeah, he would do all of that. I'd see him rip people apart. <laughs> you know, no, in Christian love, but he would rip people apart. And I would say, he ain't gonna rip me apart. And, you know, and of course, Tony being Tony. To the degree that the professors let me, I would meet him, talk to him, ask him questions. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, a lot of a lot of the favor with Mr. John McNeil and Howard Dahl was was your questions and pressing in, and it wasn't just class time. It was yeah, the, I did that in seminary. I think I was very positively embraced on the professor administrative level. I would have conversations with Dr. Walbert. Some of the professors would invite me and Lois over to their home, mm. and because I was so outgoing and took so much initiative to sit with professors, ask them questions. Right. Some of the professors would take me out to lunch. Adam <laughs> Robinson, like Howard Dial, became a friend. Wow. He was very interested in the race issue. He was from New York and, and had been around it, and so we would talk about it, or we would go to, to buy Whoppers at Burger King. <laughs> at Burger King. Yep, on Live Oak. And he yeah. would kind of... Encourage, inspire, affirm yep. 
helped me along that line while we would talk about race issues and, and other things. Right. Can, can you talk a little bit about, obviously, you've transitioned now Baltimore to Atlanta, mm -hmm. Atlanta now to Dallas. Were there differences, similarities? You know? Well, yeah. The, well, the black presence in Dallas wasn't the same as the black presence in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, you know, there was racial tension. Right. But it wasn't in your face like it was in Atlanta. Mm. On the campus of Dallas Seminary, you knew you had students who did not have history dealing with black people. And, right. and that showed up in two ways. It showed up with students who were uncomfortable. And it showed up with students who wanted to become comfortable. They wanted to know. They would ask questions. They would have discussions. But you you had those students that didn't want, that, that still had their old mindset because things were still pretty segregated in Dallas. Right. Even though it wasn't in your face like it was in Atlanta. Right. So so that was kind of the, the different environment. We went to some places in Dallas. The pastor had been or was Dwight Pentecost who was the leading eschatological, he wrote th things to come. His last name was Pentecost? Yes, his last name was Pentecost. <laughs> Dwight Pentecost, that was his real name. And he wrote this thick work called Things to Come, which, which back then was the comprehensive primer for eschatology. Wow. And for premillennial, pre-tribulational eschatology. It would be that book, and for many, still is that book. We went there to visit one Sunday, and they, the deacons, let us know very early on that black people were not welcome here. Wow! And that was a Bible church, right? So it was, it was um, very interesting to to have that kind of experience. Can you tell us a little bit about some of Lois's, Miss um, Lois's friendships with maybe other students' wives or? <laughs> Uh, you know, professors' wives? On campus, they had a, um, a students' wives gathering that would take place like on Thursday nights. Okay. And they would, uh, the wives would come for fellowship and for, for ministry. Okay. So she developed friendships. We also moved to an apartment complex where we developed some friendships with some of the wives of the students there. And some of the couples that were there on the campus, right. we would go over to each other's houses for spaghetti, usually right, right. the cheapest thing you could you could cook. Yeah, uh, uh, a lot of sharing meals together, and yeah, yeah, that was camaraderie. Yeah, a, a lot of racial discussions in those contexts because right. for many of them, I was their lone relational person that was part of their lives. So we developed good camaraderie because we were easy to relate to and. And for the ones who wanted to relate, they were easy to relate to. As much as Tony loved his classes and studying the word, he still had to hustle to provide for his family. Lois found a part-time job. I found a part-time job. I worked with the Boy Scouts of America part-time. She had a part-time administrative job. And we juggled our schedules around Crystal. So that one of us would be home. I'd be home studying. She would be working. It would, we were able to juggle the schedule. And in juggling the schedule, that this is, again, Crystal did not want to go to sleep. <laughs> so, and she would 
cry and cry and cry. I remember calling Lois and saying, because I didn't know what to do. Right. I was lost. I was so lost. <laughs> and, and she would cry and cry and cry and cry, which meant I couldn't study. I said to Lois, I said, okay, this is not working. I said, you come home and I will work it out. I was doing my man thing. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you come home and I'll work it out. I didn't know how I was going to work it out. Right. But I knew this couldn't last. Yeah. In the master's program, I did the Boy Scouts of America, but now I'm also loading and unloading buses on the weekend at Trailways Bus Station. Now, I've heard a story about this. I'm, I want you to tell us some, okay. some facts about this and this moment in ministry, really. Yeah. I was on the night shift. I worked yep. from seven at, 11 at night to 7 in the morning, loading and unloading buses as they came in. And uh, that would be every weekend. They had a way of operating there where you would punch people in even though they weren't get back so that they could sleep but still be paid. And based on another person's night, they would punch the other person. So you switch out. Okay. So you were being being paid, but you weren't working. Okay. And so it was, it was a scheme that they had made very successful. So coming into work, I mean, did the guys, as you take this job, sit you down and say, hey, look, rookie, this is this is how it's going to go down? Yeah, this is what we do. This right. is what we do. Right. And and I'm just, I, I think I just didn't do it. Right. And it became apparent that right. I wasn't participating in the program. So I was expected to be a part of that because it was just the way it was. But I, I didn't do it. I didn't go with the program, which wasn't the thing to do. Right. So therefore, I would be often shunned, for, right. to use that word, or left to, right. to unload by myself or whatever. But after some time, I was called into the office at 7 in the morning when I got off. And somehow they had been noticed, they had known, had, had somebody check what was happening with the night shift. And they knew about this scheme. But they also knew some kind of way that I wasn't participating. Hmm. And I guess they knew I was a seminary student and all of that. So they made me the supervisor for the night shift. <laughs> so that was kind of a, yeah, I'd call that a spiritual one. We'll be right back. Calling all pastors and kingdom leaders. Dr. Tony Evans wants you to join him at the Kingdom Leaders Summit. You'll experience unforgettable panel discussions and in-depth teachings from Dr. Evans and others. Discover how to apply God's kingdom principles to your ministry, community, and personal life. There's sessions for pastor's wives too. The dates are October 3rd through the 6th. Register now at kap2023.com. That's kap2023.com. As Tony progressed through the DTS master's program, he connected to a church. Priscilla, their second, was born, and he continued to network outside the classroom. We went to Community Bible Church. Okay. Pastor by Reuben Connor. Right out the gate as you came in, as you I came in, this church. because John McNeil told me about Reuben Connor. Okay, great. Reuben Connor had a Bible church. This is the early in the Bible church movement. Okay, and he had a Bible church because he was one of those first four students who went to Dallas Seminary. Okay, he was a barber who got saved and went to seminary, who planted a church that was a Bible church. Wow, that was different. That was a different dynamic 
I'm for African Americans. And you said Bible he planted church. this He planted church. this okay. church, yes. Okay. So based on the recommendation of John McNeil, we went and became part of Community Bible Church and went there, served there. Do you remember the experience as one of four African American students, families on the campus? Like, Yeah. We would get together, the four of us. Yep. One of the men dropped out. Okay. The three of us would get together. It would be me, Eddie Lane, and Reuben Connor. And we would get together and um, just talk about the race issue and what they experienced, what we experienced, right. you know, the good, the bad. Uh, they were older than me, so uh, they were learning. Plus, they both had black churches. Right. But they were both had Bible churches. But Eddie Lane had Bible Way Bible Church, it was called. And so they both had Bible churches. And um, so they were both in this dual world, like I was. And then, of course, with the church and Eddie Lane and Reuben Connor, that was a whole another right. arena. Right. So we were able to live in both worlds because the church world was African-American predominantly. The yeah. seminary world was predominantly Anglo, and we were, we were moving in both worlds at the same time. I know that there was a racial dynamic there, but when you invest in current seminary students today, how important it is for a seminary student to saturate themselves into a local church while studying? How, how important mm. was that for you? That's criti critical because you can become academically stale even if you're accurately correct. Um, the, because our faith must include life, not just knowledge. And so there was a period of time where I was informationally full, but somewhat spiritually anemic hmm. because hmm. I was spending so much time trying to, because they overwhelm you. Every, every professor thinks his class is the only class you have. <laughs> yeah. And so they just be stuffing you and you got to take these tests and read all these books and right. so it became very stressful so you became somewhat anemic and you had to kind of reboot so you need that that fellowship that dynamic that gathering that worshiping where it's not just about information right but about connectivity so we would spend time together and i'm i'm with um eddie lane now, at this time, there is an entity growing called the National Black Evangelical Association. Its original name was the National Negro Evangelical Association, but with the black movement, it changed to black. Mm -hmm. This was calling together people across the country who were African-American, who had, to varying degrees, had the African-American experience but who were more evangelically minded in their theology. Okay. This group was organized to set in motion bringing a biblical perspective and marrying it to the black experience rather than the European white evangelical experience which looked at life and the Bible differently. Mm. And so they began having these conferences. William Bentley was a historian and a brilliant historian who could quote the history of the black church and why it was critical that many of those elements of our heritage not be lost in this white evangelical structure. Hmm. But at the same time, a high view of scripture. Yep. The leading personality 
in NBEA was Tom Skinner. Bentley was the thinker, but Tom Skinner was the voice. In other words, to belong to this fellowship called the community of God, we are to lay our lives down for each other. And you cannot belong to this community. You cannot call yourself the community of God if you're not prepared to die for each other. Now, you see, it's easy. It's very easy to get together and have spiritual goose pimples together. Very easy to get together and put our arms around each other, you know, and go, pray. we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. When we pray that our unity, Jesus says, then die. Amen. May one day be one. <laughs> because it's easy to go through the swing and to put our arms around each other here. But are we prepared to lay our lives down for each other? Are we prepared to say, brother, sister, because you are a member of the community of God, my life is yours? You see, the problem is we want Jesus and we want to praise Jesus and we want to thrill to Jesus as long as it doesn't cost anything. We want to celebrate Jesus, but we don't want to die. And you can't have a family unless that family's prepared to lay each other, lives down for each other. Now to show you how messed up the world is, Jesus is talking about dying and we're running around. Jesus saying, lay down your lives for each other. And we're going around saying, you know, we ought to tolerate one another. Jesus talking about dying and we're talking about toleration. <laughs> Jesus talking about dying and we saying, you know, we should accept one another. Jesus talking about dying and we're talking about acceptance. Jesus talking about dying and folk running around talking about to bus or not to bus. That is the question. Jesus talking about dying. Don't you see how messed up the system is as opposed to the way the kingdom operates? And don't you understand that if you're going to belong to the kingdom, you've got to operate out of the kingdom's values? And the kingdom says that God's putting together a family of people whose relationship with each other is thicker than blood brother and sister. You prepared for that? You prepared for that kind of community? He and I had become friends during this time. So a lot of the, the racial mentoring came. We would be in these private meetings, these debates, the National Black Evangelical Association gatherings that I would go to as a seminary student here at Dallas Seminary, where there was this theological discussion of bringing black leaders together to deal with ministry, but also with, with, with the issue of race from, from a theological standpoint. Now, there were different nuances there, but when people knew Tom Skinner was going to speak, the room would be jam-packed because he was operating on both sides. He was operating on the evangelical side, but also on the justice side. But you would hear him talk about kingdom. Mm. He would talk about kingdom. Mm. And I didn't know that he was planning something in me that would emerge later right. in terms of a theological framing. But uh, uh, but we would get, we would have one-on-ones. We would sit down. We would, he was chaplain of the Washington Redskins during that time. Okay. So I, I knew about that, but he was also engaging political leaders uh, during that time. He had some personal struggles during that time with his marriage, and that didn't go well either for evangelical leaders. Right. So, 
Uh, so you had all these things taking place at one time. But, I mean, he among black emerging leaders, Tom Skinner was the man. It was the the hero. And so when he invited you in, was that, hey, come to this crusade with me? Were, were there, I would just, that, because that, I was a student with right. the family, it would be where where it would naturally happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 he would host some symposiums, and and I, when I could, I went went to those. But those naturally kind of took place. So that's that was him. So he was an immense influence in evangelism, in racial justice, and in kingdom orientation. He planted something. He in planted you. seeds in all of those areas, and wow. all of them I was I was interested in. Wow. So he's another one I ask a lot of questions to. Right <laughs> for hours, for hours. Right. Uh, if I was near him, we would we would get a meal together. We would do something, and and, uh, and we had an inside track because my sister in law, Elizabeth, babysat his daughters. Okay. So so she had a connection too with the family. So it was a pretty close relationship. Two things came from Tom Skinner and Bill Bentley for me, just to put this in a position. The, the seminary was starting to open up to try to attract more African-Americans to come to the school. So they actually sent me and Eddie Lane, who is now working part-time at the seminary, to the conference okay. to represent the school. So the school was including you in this hope to in, see it that's right. grow. That's right. And, we were part of it. Yeah the advertisement for the school, which we were yeah. glad to do. First yeah. of all, we got a free trip somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we got a free hotel. You know, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we were, that's what we were doing. So we would go to the conferences. During this time, there was the rise of black theology mm. and the emergence coming out of the 60s, actually. But by the time I'm in seminary, it's full-blown of a man named James Comer. He is the father of black theology. So this became the debate black theology, which is the American form, racial form of liberation theology. Right. This was a big part of the discussions. What is the relationship of the black experience to theology, to our exegesis, to our study of the Bible? But what became the highlight of the conventions was me and Bill Bentley. <laughs> because we had debates about black theology. Because wow. I'm now getting into this this rising theological right. thing. So, so I'm being exposed. So we're debating. Now, I couldn't debate him academically, historically, because he was, I mean, he was in that, he was much older than me. But I was bringing a more theological challenge to some of his conclusions. Mm. So we would have actually debates at the conference and the room would be packed. They would be packed because they would want to hear us go at each other. So this they, is on stage. This debates, is on stage debating. Dialed yeah. up. Let's yeah. let's talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this. <laughs> William H. Bentley was one of the first black graduates of Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. He was a self-professed black nationalist who maintained a fundamentalist Christian commitment. He was known as the godfather of militant black evangelicals. Bentley's more radical views clashed with the biblical evangelism and ethnic unity Tony was coming to embrace as his core theology. But all the time now, I'm, while I'm debating, I'm also learning. Right, right. Because I'm listening. I'm debating my point, but I'm listening to his brilliance wow. of argument, too. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm listening. And other black leaders would come to this conference and we would discuss all these issues related to race. 
and justice and all of that, and black theology. Little did I know that the framework was being set for my doctoral dissertation. We'll be right back. Discover a full collection of resources inspired by the life and teachings of Dr. Tony Evans at LifeWay.com, including books, Bible studies, and commentaries. Explore God's Word in a fresh way with the Tony Evans Study Bible. With notes and commentary he personally crafted and curated to inspire and empower you to live out the values of the kingdom of God. For a limited time, get 25% off one regular priced product on LifeWay.com with promo code EVANS25. That's L-I-F-E-W-A-Y.com. Promo code EVANS25. Expires October 31st. Next time on Start to Finish. I'm going through the THM, the master's program at Dallas Seminary, and I'm majoring in pastoral ministry. Now, up to this time, I'm thinking I'm going to be an evangelist like Philadelphia. Right. Because that's where I went in the summers. That's what I did. Right. Evangelism, which included church planning, but it was driven by evangelism. What I had to decide was whether we were going to start Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship or start the church, start a church, or teach at Dallas Seminary okay. because I was offered both opportunities. And uh, when the church got started, um, obviously we didn't have a Sunday school as such, but both of us would speak on Sunday mornings. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Which was the dumbest thing in the world. Both <laughs> <laughs> you know, we look oh, back on that and you go, you know, despite the obstacles we threw in the Holy Spirit's way, the thing grew. Start to Finish, The Life and Ministry of Dr. Tony Evans is a podcast powered by the North American Mission Board. You can get in touch with us at resources at nam.net. That's resources at namb.net. If this podcast is helpful to you, and I really hope that it was, it would be helpful to us if you'd leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to and share it with all your friends. Start to Finish is made possible by the cooperation the Urban Alternative, Dr. Tony Evans, and the Evans family. Our show is written by Neil Hoppy and produced by Kevin Spratt. Editing by Jeremy Spencer. Our sound engineers are Eric Chapman and Aaron Leslie. Our music is by J. Adam Wesley. Trevin Wax is our executive producer. See you next time. <laughs>